Well, this morning we are going to be back in the book of Ephesians as we continue through our series uh, here in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be beginning a new section that goes from uh, chapter 1, verse 15, all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. Uh, This section, this greater section, is going to take us about three or four sermons to work through. This section focuses on this prayer of Paul, and then Paul's going to talk about the power of God in his prayer and following. Uh, Today we're going to be focusing on the prayer of Paul. And so with that, let me pray for us as we jump into the word of God today. Father, we pray that you would, through your Holy Spirit, by the work of the Spirit, God, help us to gain wisdom and revelation through your word today. Enlighten, God, the eyes of our heart, that we might know you more, walk with you more faithfully. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, as a kid, one of the Saturday morning cartoons that I would sometimes watch was G.I. Joe. It wasn't my favorite cartoon, uh, but I watched it enough to remember the tagline at the end of the cartoon. And so at the end of every episode, there would be one of the cartoon kids and then one of the cartoon soldiers, and they would be discussing, I guess, whatever happened in the episode. And at one point, the kid would say, Man, I, I, I didn't know that. I never knew. And then the soldier would say, well, now you know, and knowing is half the battle. So then we have to ask ourselves today as we come to this text, what is it that God would have us know from this text today? What is it that we should know from the text today? And, and that brings us to our big idea. And our big idea today is this, is that prayer As one of the pillars of the church's life and activity, prayer is critical to knowing God and living the Christian life. Prayer is critical to knowing God and living the Christian life. And I'm going to take an opportunity at the end of the sermon in our application section to look not just at prayer, but actually these three main pillars of church life. But before we do that, We're going to look specifically into our text today, and we are going to look at the idea of prayer. And so if you have your Bibles, please look at chapter 1, verse 15 in the book of Ephesians. I'm going to read through verse 18. Paul writes, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And we'll pause there and pick up next week after that. Paul here is saying to us, he's going to be modeling a prayer for us. Paul is praying for these people, and as he prays for these people and records the content of his prayer, as it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, this will be a a model to help us understand prayer and how it is critical and essential to living the Christian life. Now, at the heart of the Christian life that we're called to live, remember, are the the two greatest commandments. When Jesus was asked what is the the greatest commandment, he said the, the first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he added, and the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. 
love God, love others. That's at the heart of the Christian life. Love God, love others. And what we're going to see in this prayer of Paul that can become a model for us is that by giving thanks to God, by thanksgiving and remembrance, we can actually be walking in those two greatest commandments, loving God and loving neighbor, through our prayers. Which, friends is really encouraging right now, considering we don't really get to see people. Our opportunity to love our neighbor seems like it's been diminished, but we can actually love our neighbor through the activity of prayer. And so we'll see that in the text. And so first, we want to look back at what Paul says here. He's going to be talking about Thanksgiving. Now listen to verse 15. For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you. So Paul looks out. He remembers, he hears about, he sees these believers at Ephesus, and he sees their faith in Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. They believe in Jesus. They have turned from their pagan idolatry, from from living in a way that's, that's leading to death and destruction. It's not good for them. And they've turned in faith to Jesus. They have received life in Jesus. Paul sees this. And then he sees also their love for the saints. Their sacrificial laying down of their lives for the brethren and the way that they love one another. And do you know what Paul does? His first recourse isn't to call them, to to give them a pat on the back, although I'm sure he tells them what he sees in them, that he's proud of them. But the first thing that Paul does is that he gives thanks to God. He does not cease giving thanks to God. There is a continual thanksgiving offered to God. By giving thanks to God, For their faith in Jesus and their love for the fellow believers, Paul is acknowledging and honoring God as the source and reason for this faith and love. By giving thanks to God, you love God. Because when you honor God and when you acknowledge God as the source of people's faith and love, it is a way of of loving God. And loving God, remember, is the first and greatest commandment. Thanksgiving, to thank somebody for something, is an act of gratitude to someone for something that they have done. And so when we give thanks to God, we enter into an act of gratitude towards God. When we pray, it's not a ceasing from activity. We enter into the activity of rendering gratitude to God for what he has done. And in this case, Paul says specifically that we should enter into this activity of giving gratitude to God for the faith and the love of Christians. Now, Paul also says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And so Paul is telling us here that this thanksgiving, this act of giving gratitude to God for them, is also a means of remembering them. It's an act not only of gratitude, but it's an act of remembrance. So as we pray for Christians, it's an act of gratitude towards God and an act of remembrance for the saints. And remembrance, friends, is a powerful tool. It's a powerful tool to help 
keep and knit together the hearts of God's people in love. When you faithfully pray for somebody, you will find that you love them more. It will happen. I've seen it happen in my life. I've heard testimony after testimony of others. When you pray for somebody, when you bring them before God and remember them in your prayers, it will foster love and it will be beneficial for them. And so by giving thanks to God for other Christians, you're not only loving God through this act of rendering gratitude to God, but you will solidify your bond through remembrance with other believers and thereby you will love them as well. So in a time, friends, when we find ourselves having to shelter in place and we feel so hindered from some of the regular activities through which we often demonstrated our love to God and our love to neighbor, we have been given a unique and wonderful opportunity to press deeply into the activity of prayer. And in so doing, we will be able to walk in the two greatest commandments. We will love God and we will love our neighbor. We will love God through the activity of rendering gratitude and thanksgiving to Him for the love and faith of our fellow believers. And we will love our neighbor, our fellow believers, through the activity of remembering them before God, thereby solidifying our bond of love for them and bringing about a benefit in them through prayer. So friends, we must remember to pray. Prayer is an essential and critical aspect of living the Christian life. And now we're going to see that prayer is actually a critical aspect to knowing God as well. Paul continues in his prayer in verse 17. He prays again in verse 16. Paul, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ... The Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. And so what Paul specifically asks God now for, he's given thanks for the believers, and now he's going to ask, he's going to petition God for something for them. And this is what he asks. He wants the eyes of their heart to be enlightened. That's what we see in the beginning of verse 18, that the eyes of their heart may be enlightened. Now, the way that Paul envisions this, the way that Paul envisions the, the darkness that, that covers the eyes of our heart, that comes from our own sin and brokenness, that, that, that does not allow us to see the world as it actually is. It's concealing this darkness. That's what darkness does. It, it conceals your ability to see things as they are. If... I'm in the church sanctuary right now. I'm looking out empty pews, but I'm looking out at pews right now. Now, if it was completely pitch dark in here, I would see none of them. I would have no idea that they were there, but that wouldn't mean that they were actually gone. And I would know that if I tried to walk down uh, right through the middle of those pews. Even though I couldn't see them, I would bang my shins into them, hit them, I'd fall over. Just because I can't see them doesn't mean they're not there. Darkness conceals the reality that is before us. And so Paul says here, he's praying. 
He's praying to God that God would enlighten, shine light into the eyes of our heart so that our heart, that, that deep part of who we are and how we understand things, would be able to see something. We need that because of the fall of man, because of our own sinfulness. We don't understand the world the way that it really is. And so Paul prays, and what he prays is, is that this enlightening would happen in two ways. He, he prays that God would grant wisdom and revelation. Listen to what Paul says. He prays to the Father of glory that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now the first thing that we want to say is that Paul prays for the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And what Paul means here is it's his acknowledgement that this wisdom and this revelation, this revealing that Paul is asking for must come through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the way that God grants wisdom and reveals things to his people. It's through the work of the Holy Spirit. What does Paul want the Holy Spirit to enlighten these believers with? Well, the first thing, as we said, is wisdom. So we ask ourselves, what, what is wisdom? What is Paul actually praying for? What does that word mean biblically? Well, in the Bible, wisdom simply means this, that we would live God's ways in God's world. Wisdom is understanding how to live God's way in God's world. And so, specifically here, Paul is praying that these followers of Jesus would know how to follow Jesus, to live as followers of Jesus in God's world. He understands that this is a gift of God's grace, which comes through the Spirit. This is why Paul prays. This is why Paul doesn't just say, here's a textbook on how to do this. When Paul wants them to have wisdom, he prays to God. God must give wisdom through the Spirit. No matter how much we read our Bibles, and friends, you should read your Bible. No matter how much we read our Bibles, though, if the Spirit of God does not act upon us, then what we read will not produce wisdom. It will not bring about an effect in us that allows us to actually live God's ways in God's world. We need the Holy Spirit to do that. It's the Holy Spirit that, that writes the law of God on our heart. It's the Holy Spirit that must impress upon us the truth of God's word in such a way that we actually acquire wisdom. And so Paul prays for wisdom. Listen to what James says in James chapter 1 and verse 5. James says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach. Now notice, just because God will give generously to all without approach, because God is generous with his grace, God desires to grant grace in the avenue of wisdom to all. It doesn't mean that we presume upon this grace. We must still ask God, would you grant wisdom? And so we must pray. Again, friends, we cannot overlook the critical importance of prayer. Paul prays that the Father would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, revelation is simply the idea that something would be revealed which is concealed. And so, because Paul is praying that our, the eyes of our heart would be enlightened, that we would be able to see certain things, the idea is this. 
is that all of us, because of the fall of man, the brokenness of humanity, all of us need God to work, the Spirit of God to enlighten our, the eyes of our heart, which means to reveal that which has been concealed because of our sinfulness. This means that every human who is born, until God does this work of the Spirit on them, we do not naturally see the world the way that it truly is. Because, notice what Paul prays. He prays that they would be given a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of their heart enlightened. Which means at the center of all wisdom and knowledge of all understanding is God Himself. To understand the world or anything in the world apart from God is to fundamentally misunderstand the world or that thing. To understand the world or anything in the world apart from God without reference to who God is, is to misunderstand that thing. In the book of Colossians, we're told by the Apostle Paul again, in chapter 1 and verse 16, that in Jesus Christ and through Jesus Christ and for Jesus Christ, all things have been created. We hear elsewhere that Jesus upholds the worlds by the word of his power. He upholds all things. By the word of his power. God is the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, and one day will come back and be the restorer of this entire world. And so to understand anything apart from the knowledge of God is to misunderstand it. And so Paul prays, God, would you please reveal to the, the hearts of your people more and more, would you reveal the knowledge of yourself? Because it's in the knowledge of God that we gain any knowledge at all. And so the prayer of Paul is that we would receive wisdom, that we could live God's way in his world as the Holy Spirit reveals to us all things in and through God. We must understand ourselves, our world, our mission that we have been given, all things, what we're supposed to do, who we are, what's our identity, what's our end goal, what's the purpose of humanity, why is there a world, what's going on. All of this must be understood in reference to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has revealed himself to be the Holy Trinity, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To understand this world, we must understand God. And to understand God, God must reveal himself to us by the work of the Holy Spirit through the person of Jesus. So you wanna, you wanna know God? You wanna live faithfully for God? Then beseech God the Father that the Holy Spirit would reveal to you the knowledge of God which we see in the person of Jesus. This is what we should do. We've got to ask God for these things. We've got to ask God. And so friends, I would just say this today. Take some time today. Pray. Give thanks Right? For, for other believers and in giving thanks, you will be remembering them. By remembering them, you're going to be loving them and solidifying your bonds of love with them. By giving thanks to God, you're going to be loving God through an act of gratitude to God. And then pray specifically that God would grant the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. And that we might have the eyes of our hearts enlightened.
Because, remember, we're called to love God and to love our neighbor. We are called to live God's ways in God's world, which is wisdom. And this comes from the gift of the Holy Spirit. And so now, I'm going to transition a little bit. I want to I ask the question, how, how does God give His people the spirit of wisdom and revelation and knowledge of Him? What has to happen? How is it that we... We will live God's way in God's world. How are we going to live out this wisdom? And the answer that the Bible gives is that, that we, we need to be transformed inside. There needs to be an inner transformation, or as it's put other places, the, the law of God written on our heart so that we are transformed to actually desire that which God commands. We are transformed to actually desire that which is best for us. And this is what the Spirit does. He, he begins this act of transformation in us. But what are the avenues through which that happens? And I want us to listen here to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 18. Paul writes, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory from another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. And so Paul says here that what's going on comes from the Spirit of God, from the Lord who is the Spirit. So this is the Spirit's work, whatever's going on, and this is what's going on. Paul says, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So what is the image that we are being transformed into, the same image? He says before that, beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image. But notice the way that this happens. The transformation happens as we behold the glory of the Lord. Now, Paul's going to tell us later in chapter 4, just a few verses past this, that we behold the glory of the Lord in the face of Jesus Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit brings about this transformation inside of us. As we behold the glory of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ, as we behold and marvel and meditate on and see with the eyes of our heart the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ, then the Spirit transforms us into the same image. No beholding, no transformation. And so now I want us to think through. I want us to think through the, the, the main means by which we can behold Jesus and we see these laid out for us clearly in Acts chapter 2 and verse 42. Now remember, again, Acts chapter 2 begins with the day of Pentecost, where the apostles are gathered together and the Spirit of God is poured out upon them. And they begin to preach, uh, preach, and everybody out in the crowd who were, who'd come from all over the world, different places, they, they don't all speak the same language, but they're all hearing what is being preached in their own native tongue. The Holy Spirit had given the gift of tongues to the apostles. They're preaching. People are hearing the message. People are getting saved. And the church is born. Now, shortly after that, in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we hear of the activity, what's going on in the life of the church. And this is what we read. And they devoted themselves. This was an ongoing... They devoted themselves... Now listen... To the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. These are these two main things that they were devoted to. The apostles' teaching and then <clears throat> the word is the fellowship. Now, we often think of fellowship and we think of it as a getting together. Maybe you're sharing a meal together. You have somebody over to your house. 
But that word fellowship, the Greek word koinonia, the main idea is a participation. It's also the word we get for communion. Uh, so it's a participation. So we want to think with that. Now, of course, it, it comes as they're gathered, okay? But think of that idea of participation. So there's, there's a continual focus on the Apostles' Doctrine, on the Word, and on participation. And then this participation is defined in these two ways. So there was a, there's a, they devoted themselves to the Apostles' teaching and fellowship. And then this fellowship, this participation is defined as the breaking of bread and the prayers. So if we think about that, we have these three main pillars then. You have, you have the Apostles' Doctrine, the Word of God. Then you have this participation, which is described in two terms, the, the breaking of bread, the Lord's Supper, and the prayers. Word, sacrament, and prayer. These are the pillars of the church life and activity. And so what we want to do is we want to look at these three pillars of church life. We want to think about the Word. Let's think about the Word first. Now, as we think about the Word, that's what came first. They were focused on the Apostles' doctrine, on the Word of the Gospel, as the Apostles were explaining all that God had done in and through the person and work of Jesus. Now, as we think about the Word, we must remember that the Word of God functions with a place of primacy among these three other pillars of church life. The Word of God is primary because the Word of God is the initial part that we must have. Without the Word of God, none of the rest of this can be true. Without the Word of God, without the message of the Gospel, then all of the bread that we're breaking and the cup that we're drinking and the prayers that we're offering, without the Gospel and faith in Jesus, none of that matters. And so the Word of God must occupy a primary place in our understanding of the life and the activity of the church before anyone can truly partake of the sacraments or, of the ch or, or, or offer faithful prayers to God there must first be a hearing and response to the word, to the gospel. Now, also we hear about the importance of the word of God in John chapter 17 and verse 17. At the Last Supper, before Jesus will commission his disciples, right? Before he commissions them to be leaders of the church, he first prays to God. And this is what he asks. He says, God, would you sanctify them in truth? Set these people apart in truth for your purposes and your calling. Sanctify them. Set them apart, God, in truth. Your word is truth. Jesus acknowledges before they can carry out their mission, before they can be ambassadors and heralds for him, they must be set apart in truth in the word of God. So we see the importance of it. Again, think about this, Acts chapter 2, which talked about the day of Pentecost. <clears throat> Before the crowds will call out, remember Peter is preaching at the end of it, he, he says, this Jesus who you crucified, who you guys nailed to the cross, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And they call out, oh, what must we do? They're terrified that they had nailed the Messiah to the tree. What, what can we do? And Peter calls out, of course, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins. But before they call out, before they can be baptized, there is the preaching of the Word of God. The Word of God must come first. The Word of God must be responded to in repentant faith. And then, then can come the sacrament of baptism. 
The Word of God is God's divinely inspired preservation of the creating, saving, and restoring work of God in this world. The Word of God records and preserves for us who God is and what God has done, and it gives us God's perspective on things as they are. Because of this, it is a potent and primary means for us to behold God's glory in the face of Jesus. In the Word of God, we see that activity of God. We see what God has been doing in and through Jesus throughout the ages of history. And in the Word of God, we behold with a potency the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so the Word of God has a primary place in the life of the church because of what it has preserved and what it reveals to us, what it tells us about who God is and what He's done, how it gives us God's take on the way things are, and because the Word of God and the Word of the Gospel must necessarily come before we can faithfully partake of the sacraments of the church or offer prayers to God. The Word of God is primary in the life of the church. But we would be remiss to think that the Word of God was all we needed in the life of the church. If we did that, we would actually be walking contradictory to what the Word of God teaches us. And so the, the next pillar of the life and activity of the church that we want to think a little bit about are, are the sacraments of the church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are powerful and potent ways for us to participate. Remember, fellowship was described as the breaking of bread and the prayers. And now we're going to lump baptism in with the breaking of bread because we saw that baptism took place before Acts 2.42. The reason that it's not mentioned here as a part of the continual devotion in the life of the church is because unlike the Lord's Supper, which is to happen whenever the church gathers, baptism is a one-time act in the life of any believer. But as we think about baptism as a, as a part of the, the sacraments of the church, we do want to understand that baptism and the Lord's Supper alike are ways that we are called to participate in the Word of God, in the Gospel. It is a participation. And so first we want to look at the centrality of baptism in the life of the church. Now we could talk about how it is that it's baptism that is seen as the way in which we become, enter into the church through baptism. We become a member of the church body. But we want to think specifically now in that idea that baptism is a way for us to participate in the word of the gospel. And through participation, we have a powerful avenue of beholding. Baptism is a bodily participation in the word of the gospel. Listen to Paul in Romans 6, chapter 3, following. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Paul, what do you mean? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. So, our baptism is a way for us to participate in this word of the gospel. The word of the gospel is that Jesus came, he was born of the virgin, he lived the perfect life, and then he died for us on the tree. He was 
buried and then rose again and ascended to God the Father. And when we participate in baptism, Paul says that when we were baptized, we were buried with Jesus by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And so as we are dumped underwater, it is our participation in that word of the gospel. We are bodily enacting the word of the gospel and participating in it. We are buried with Jesus. And then as we come out of the water, we see that newness of life. As Jesus was raised from the dead, so too we are raised to walk in newness of life. And so you see that in baptism, it's a participation in the word of God, in the word of God. The gospel, and then likewise with the Lord's Supper. We see the same thing as we partake of the Lord's Supper. As we break bread, Jesus says in John chapter 6, If you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you will abide in me. We know that the Lord's Supper is a means of remembrance. When we see that broken bread, it reminds us, we remember that Jesus had to be broken. When we see that he is, he is the bread of life and he's broken for us, it's only in the death and the broken body of our Lord Jesus that leads to his resurrection life. It's only when Jesus' body is broken and he dies and, and he conquers death he must die on our behalf to conquer death so that he can then raise to newness of life. And as he raises to newness of life, he brings with him a new humanity. And Jesus had to die for that to happen. In order to bring a new humanity and for us to have newness of life, his body had to be broken. And so when we see that bread broken in the Lord's Supper, we remember that. But... We don't just watch the bread be broken. When we see that cup, we remember that Jesus' blood was spilled for us. That he offered himself completely to God as a sacrifice. That he stood in our stead and he took our wrath instead of us. We see that cup, we understand that Jesus is the Lamb of God who's put to death for the sins of the world. But we don't just look at the cup. We are called to partake. We take the bread and we eat. We take the cup and we drink. It is a participation in the word of the gospel. We partake of Jesus. We must participate in the word of the gospel because participation is one of the most powerful and potent ways of beholding. It's one thing to look. I mean, think about this. This is true just in life in general. It's one thing to read about how to do something in a textbook. It's a totally different thing to get your hands in there and actually do it. You can see and understand what the textbook is telling you so much better when you participate in the process. And then the same thing here, but to an infinitely greater degree. Our ability to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ 
is amplified and magnified and, and it's just it's exponentially greater as we participate in the word of the gospel through the sacraments of the church. And so it is very, very sad that we have not been able to gather together to participate in the Lord's Supper. But Lord willing, that day is coming. But do you see how it is that in the Lord's Supper and in baptism, there is a participation in the word of the gospel? The apostles, the, the church was continually devoting itself to the apostles' doctrine, to the word of God, and to fellowship, koinonia, to participation. And the first leg of that participation is the sacraments of the church as we bodily participate in the word of the gospel. Now the next thing, the third pillar that we see are the prayers. And it's interesting. In Acts chapter 2, it said that the church is continually devoting themselves to the apostles' doctrine, the fellowship, which is the breaking of bread and the prayers, which clues us into something. This is not a, a broad, general description of prayer, but there was a specific thing in mind, the prayers. By declaring that the church was focused on the prayers, Luke seems to be alluding, alluding to set times of prayer and some sort of set content of prayer. Just listen to Acts chapter 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. There is a set time for prayer. Now, there's also, in the Bible's teaching, what we see a set content that we should have in our prayers. Think of Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, and Luke chapter 11, verse 2, as, as the Jesus' disciples ask him, hey, listen, John's disciples he taught them how to pray aren't you going to teach us how to pray and so jesus then of course is going to go into what we call the lord's prayer but he begins like this in matthew he says pray then like this and then he says our, our father who is in heaven and, and in luke he says when you pray say oh when you pray actually say these things our father in heaven hallowed be your name and jesus tells his disciples that they should pray specific words and then what follows, what follows in the Lord's prayer is a prayer that focuses on the grace and the glory of the Trinitarian God. Now, let me just pause and say this. The word of the God, the word of God, the word of the gospel comes to us, comes from outside of us and it, it's given to us. And so we hear, we're called to respond to the word of God, which is this external word. But then we're not only meant to focus on, to hear the word of God. Remember, it's, it's the apostles' doctrine and then it's fellowship, it's participation. And it's these two pillars that form the participation in the word of the gospel. There is the sacraments where we bodily enact and we bodily participate in the word of the gospel. And then there is the life of prayer or the prayers. 
Now, what happens when we pray is that it's a participation in the Word of God because it's not just a hearing of the Word of God, but now what we're called to do in the life of prayer is that we are now taking that and we are the ones who are now speaking that Word of God, the Word of the Gospel, back to God. And so it's a participation in the Word of the Gospel. And this is why when we see Jesus telling his disciples what to pray, we're going to see that Jesus is going to lay out for them a prayer that focuses on the gospel, that focuses on the grace and glory of our Trinitarian God. We are to begin by petitioning God the Father for the spread of his glory. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. We pray, and this is at the heart of what the Christian life should be about, for the glory and fame of God the Father, for the hallowing of His name, for the revering of His name, for the making much of God's glory, and that it would spread so that as the waters cover the sea, so the glory of the Lord will cover the earth. This is followed then by a petition for the coming of the kingdom. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come and your will be done. This is a kingdom that was announced and secured by Jesus, the Son of God. After this, we are to ask for our daily bread. We are to ask God for that essential life-giving sustenance and, and all of the human food that we receive and eat. All of that is to, to cause us to understand and to remember, to think about the true bread of God that comes down from, from heaven, Jesus Christ, who is the true bread of God. And as we just talked about with the Lord's Supper, his body had to be broken and then he had to die, raised to life so that we could partake then and have true life. After this, we are then to ask for forgiveness. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. And of course, forgiveness has come to us from God through Jesus Christ. This is the message of the gospel that we can be forgiven of our sins and therefore have removed from us that which impeded us from fellowship with God, that which kept us, our own sin, from being able to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And so we ask for forgiveness and in doing so as we pray this, it is our participation in the word of the gospel as it now comes from us, not just to us. And finally, we ask God to lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we are told in the scripture that it is the Spirit of God who has been given to every single believer as a down payment of our inheritance. It is the Spirit of God that leads the sons of God. It's the Spirit of God that grants wisdom and allows us to live God's ways in God's world. So what do we see? We see this prescripted and prescribed prayer that God has given to his people. And we see that it was given so that we may then, as those who have heard the word 
and responded to the word in repentant faith as those who then have been baptized into the body of Christ, have bodily participated in the word of the gospel that way, who receive the Lord's Supper, who, who receive and participate by bodily taking that in, that word of the gospel. Now we are those who are called to then have that word come forth from us. Now we participate by having the word of the gospel come forth out of us and be offered up to God himself through a prescribed and prescripted prayer that Jesus gave his people. Prayer is essential in the Christian life. And as we participate in that, we behold the unique Glory of God in the person of Jesus by the work of the Holy Spirit. As Christians, yes, we must be dedicated to the Word of God, but that dedication must not only come in the hearing of the Word of God, but we must participate in the Word of God. And between these, participating in the Word of God through the Lord's Supper and through the prayers by dedicating ourselves to the hearing of the Word of God, the Apostles' Doctrine, we behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus through the Spirit, and then the Spirit transforms us to become more and more like Jesus, who is the wisdom of God. And so when Paul prays that we might be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Remember, Jesus is the, the wisdom of God and he is the full revelation of God. So it only makes sense that if those prayers are going to come true, then we must needs be transformed into the image of Jesus, who is in fact the wisdom and revelation of God. And that this is what the spirit does. The Spirit glorifies Christ and He transforms us into the image of Christ. And all of this is done for the ultimate glory of God the Father, that He might be praised for the glory of His grace. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, God, we give you thanks. You are gracious. God, we come to you in thanksgiving. Lord, I want to thank you for the saints. I want to thank you for the saints in Woodstock, for those who are a part of Gospel Grace Church. I want to thank you for all of the saints, Lord, all of those who are maybe joining us this morning outside of Woodstock, all of those who have, have played such a special role in my life, in the life of my family, Lord. We want to give you thanks. We want to give you thanks for the saints worldwide and globally. We want to remember them right now in our prayers, God, as we give you thanksgiving. Lord, we want to... Remember how critical it is for us to pray to you. God, we thank you that before the foundation of the world, you chose us that we might be holy and blameless in Christ. And the only way that that holy and blameless status could come is that if Jesus came, the holy and blameless one, and if he lived that, that perfect life that we could never live, and then he, he bore our sin on the cross, oh God, and he was buried after he died, and on the third day he rose again, God, bringing with him a new humanity that we might too walk in that newness of life. And he has now ascended, seated at your right hand from where you with your son have poured out the Holy Spirit upon your people. And the Spirit now can work 
As we behold Jesus through hearing the word of God and participating in the word of God can transform us to be more like your son. And so God, we just want to humbly say thank you. We give you thanks by the power of the Holy Spirit in the name of Jesus. Amen.